Parents at Work podcast, a podcast for the modern parent working in the modern world. Join us as we interview leading experts in their fields to unveil the secrets working parents need to succeed at work. Welcome to Parents at Work, a podcast for people who want to succeed and thrive at work while they have kids. I'm Tom Spiggle, and I'm here with my co-host, Lori Mihalik-Levin. This is sponsored by the Spiggle Law Firm, where we represent people who have been wrongfully fired or afraid that they might be. We have a particular focus on pregnancy discrimination. My name is Tom Spiggle, and uh, Lori has a program called Mindful Return, which, Lori, I will let you explain and introduce our guests and get started. Wonderful, Tom. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for joining us today. This is Lori Mahalik-Levin with Mindful Return, a program that helps new parents transition back to work after parental leave and helps employers help their employees transition back to work as well. Today, I am so thrilled that we're going to be having a podcast conversation with two moms in the performing arts. And this is our month to focus on the performing arts and parenthood in performing arts worlds. And I am really, really delighted to be joined by two wonderful moms, Rachel Spencer Hewitt and Roberta Pereira. I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of them, and then we will kick off the interview. Rachel Spencer Hewitt has an MFA in acting from the Yale School of Drama, whose credits include Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Regional Theater. She's got two children who are four and two, and she's the founder and executive director of the National Organization for Individual Caregivers and Institutional Support, the Parent Artist Advocacy League for the Performing Arts, or PAL, P-A-A-L. And Roberta Pereira is a Tony-nominated, Olivier Award-winning theater producer. She's currently the producing director of the Playwrights Realm, an off-Broadway theater company committed to amplifying the voices of emerging playwrights. She's the solo mom of 20-month-old Bianca. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel and Roberta. We're very happy to have you both here. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Thank you so much. Wonderful. And as a fan of and big supporter of the performing arts, I'm really intrigued to hear your story, especially, or your stories rather, especially given, you know, Tom and I sit in legal world, which is probably a fair space away from being in the performing arts. So very curious to get your viewpoints. Rachel, let's start off with you. Can you just give us a snapshot of what your working parent story is? Tell us a little bit about you and how you became a working parent. Sure, absolutely. I've been using New York as my home base for auditions since I graduated grad school. And, you know, it it always had its own struggles and its own late night hours of working three or four jobs, you know, just to afford being able to attend auditions and things like that. So the obstacles were plentiful. I ended up moving to Philadelphia and I had my firstborn. And when I started to audition when I was pregnant, I kept it a secret even from my agents for the first five months. And it was a personal decision in that the pregnancy felt very personal and intimate. And I liked having that secret. But in retrospect, there was also this element of I've just never been given access to what the line of communication is. Like, who do you tell first? Do you announce it on Facebook? Do you tell the director in the room when you show up? Nobody had ever given me any guidance in terms of like what that step looked like. So I just decided to tell my agent five months to see maybe if he had some advice on how we could go about it. And I expected him, you know, to be kind of concerned about my career. And it ended up being that when I told him he leapt out of his seat overjoyed and threw the door open and announced it to the whole office, which, you know, was introverted me, like my face got red, but I was also super excited that he responded that way. 
and I went back to kind of trying to control the narrative a little bit. And I was like, well, we should probably tell casting directors on a need to know basis, right? Because we don't want this to, you know, for people to define me by this, we want them to define me by my work. And he was a little confused, but he said, sure, sure, sure. At whatever you want, like you're the one deciding this. And that became a pivotal moment for me because it became the standard by which I expected other people to treat me which was I have agency over how I'm defined and how I am able to enter spaces. And as time went on, I started to write down what it was like to have a director behind the table ask me, well, are you sure you're going to be ready to do the show after you give birth? You know, everything to that, to the casting directors who stood up for me in the room. And then what it was like to get on a bus and a train with a five-week-old to go to my first audition postpartum and know to pack another t-shirt in my bag because I was probably going to get breast milk on the shirt that I was wearing while I texted a friend to meet me at a restaurant a couple blocks away so I could leave my baby with my friend while I went in and then having to math out how much do I pay the babysitters so that I have time to travel to the audition and then jump back so that I look like I didn't have a baby. And it was all of this, like all these wild logistics all just to hopefully get a job. And then I could only audition for the jobs that I could afford childcare with anyway, which are like 5% of. So it was, <laughs> I started to record these stories in, in a private journal that ended up becoming my blog, which then developed into the organization. And that was my entry point in was very by the seat of my pants, which seems to be a lot of people's story in this industry, for sure. Yeah. And one thing that strikes me is across so many industries, there's no manual for how to do this, how to tell people and when to tell them. And so maybe just say a couple of words about launching the Parent Artist Advocacy League. I'd love to hear just a snippet about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why I published a blog instead of just keeping a private journal as I'd been doing was because I was at an industry party, Christmas party, and a colleague asked how I was doing. And he was had no children and seemed ready to give me sympathy before I asked for it. And I said, well, actually, it's going well. My agents have been very supportive and have helped me figure out ways to you know, stand on my own two feet, et cetera, et cetera, and was talking about how I was successful. And he stopped me. He said, well, I wouldn't say that because that's not everybody's story. And he was basically giving me advice not to talk about it because it could hurt other people who had left the industry is what I discovered later. But I don't respond well to being silenced anyway. And throughout my 20s, I felt like that was being silenced was kind of a habit uh, industry people had of doing to women. And so when he did that, it was then I became alarmingly aware that my daughter was with a babysitter at a Starbucks a couple of blocks away while I was trying to go to an industry party and afford it. And that's what made me, instead of not talk about it, publish a blog about it. And when I published this blog, I was ready to be like, everyone to be weirded out that I was sharing these stories. But instead, I started to receive private messages, primarily from women saying, thank you for writing about this. I can't talk to my bosses about this. X theater doesn't have maternity leave. I had to leave my last job because it didn't have maternity leave. So-and-so got fired. Do you have any resources for them? Because they feel there may have been discrimination. And I realized that my earlier experience, like you said, exactly of not having a handbook was leading to discrimination that was illegal to the extent that women were losing their jobs and women were leaving our field. And so I, in publishing the blog, it made me realize that something much more formal had to happen. And I started to research Ma'am Ireland and Pippa UK and write about them on HowlRound Theatre Commons, who's a big supporter of this movement. And doing that, a friend of mine said, what if we had something like that here in the US? And so I said, yes, absolutely. And within three months of her texting me that we had launched in Philadelphia, 
New Jersey and New York. And now we have six cities. By the end of this year, we should have 10 of chapter cities to build communities. And one of our main initiatives is to build a manual, as you said, which is the PAL National Handbook of Best Practices for Institutions and how to support parents and to make sure that their policy is compliant. So it came from sharing stories. It came from not being quiet about it, quite honestly. You are on fire, lady. (laughs) That's impressive. Yeah. And just one quick follow-up question. You said that it was a model that you brought to the United States. From where did that model come? Well, it wasn't really a model. For me, it was example to where Ma'am Ireland, when I came across the article Sour Grapes by the founder of Ma'am Ireland, um, which everyone should read, it was just so striking to me. Her own story, there is the movement Waking the Feminists in Ireland, and she went and none of her friends could go because the protest was during the school hour pickup. And she was like, wow, there's not even room for us in the feminist movement, like quite literally, like we can't show up. And so for her, it was about branching off and creating a collective where the motherhood lifestyle could be documented as, you know, we're excluding a large demographic. And Pippi UK, they were able to bring the community together and did this incredibly groundbreaking survey to people throughout the UK saying, look how parents are falling off. Look how dads are excluded by not being considered caregivers. And so that was data that illuminated for the entire world. Lack of consideration is contributing directly to the pipeline. The model itself for us was what we created in terms of just by necessity because of the size of the United States. We knew that both of those models had more centralized location that could help them. And for us, we realized that, you know, Chicago theater is going to be different from New York theater is going to be different from theater out in LA, but the principles are going to be the same. And so our unions are very strong and very active. And so I think that there was some sort of subconscious understanding that individual specific communities needed to be represented, but it needed to be connected to a national platform because discrimination was persisting because solutions were only existing in pockets and singular locations. And so if we created a national network, then solutions could better disseminate and then discrimination had less of a chance persisting because it would have to run into those pathways of people talking about Mm. it. And all while you've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home, I've found similarly that I was most fired up to do something about these problems when my kids were little and it was hitting me smack in the face. So kudos to you. Oh, absolutely. You can't escape it. I mean, that's, it is a huge motivator. You'd think it was a distractor, but no, for sure. Absolutely right. Yeah. Thank you. Roberta, I'd love to hear a little bit about your working parent story as well. Yeah. So my story was a little bit different than Rachel's because being a producer, I was already a co-head of my organization when I became pregnant. And so although, you know, in the playwrights realm is a small theater in New York and off-Broadway theater, we do quite a lot of work. We're women-led and majority of the people that work for us are women. But I actually was the first person in terms of, you know, employees in the office that got pregnant. So it was a moment to, you know, what are we going to do here? But because I was one of the leads of the organizations. I was able to say, this is what I propose. This is what we should do. And my board said, that sounds great. You'll get, you know, three months of maternity leave. Of course, I also live in New York. And I had my daughter after the paid family leave when, you know, we already had that here. So we were able to use that as well. But it was really after I had my daughter, when I came back to work, I started being asked to be a part of a lot of panels in different conferences and events about parenting. And it was actually through these panels that in different events, there was a 
theater communications group conference once. I also did a panel on parenting at Broadway Con, which is this big Broadway conference they have every year. And it was through hearing other artists' stories, especially freelance artists like Rachel, that I started thinking that this is a real problem that we have in our industry because the theater industry is absolutely not made for parents. And a lot of the things that we do, you know, we have things like tech, which is basically you're in the theater for 12 hours. We have meetings every night during tech at midnight. You know, when I last time I was in tech, I remember my mom was in town helping me out. And I was like, Mom, I need to go to a meeting. And she's like, why do you have a meeting at midnight? And I was like, I don't know, because that's theater. That's what we do. <laughs> it never occurred to me that that was a weird thing in any other industry, <laughs> because it's a common practice. And I think this is part of the problem is that a lot of these things that are common practice in any industry, but specifically in theater, we just don't think to question them. And so as I became enmeshed in this world of parent artists, I started thinking, you know, maybe we should question these things. Another big one is that usually during rehearsals, we only have one day off. So we have six days of work and one day off. And depending how the timing works for that, it's possible that you won't see your kids, you know, because like in your day off, you have to do everything else with your life. And if your rehearsal is starting and depending on the time, you could be back by the time your kids are in bed, for example. And so I just started thinking about this and I knew Rachel. We actually went to grad school together. We overlapped in grad school. And so I have been following her work. And so I had this idea that it was time. There are little things that have been happening around the country, but I thought it was important for one organization, especially a Broadway organization, because there's so much attention paid in theater in New York, to take a stand and see if we could make this industry a little bit more inclusive to parent artists. Wow. Roberta, I was going to ask you generally what it's like to be a mom in the performing arts these days. And, you know, one of the themes that I'm hearing is schedule craziness, chaos of hours. Are there other things that you would say characterize motherhood in the performing arts? Yeah, I think that it's like the unknown, I guess. It's like a lot of times, for example, we won't even know our schedule for rehearsals or what specific things we're rehearsing until sometimes even the night before, right? So as a producer, I'm not required to be there every day. I probably shouldn't because I want to leave the artist space to do their work. But at certain moments, it's key for me to be there to be a support to them. But it's sometimes really hard to know. And what I found that as a parent, you know, planning is everything. And you, of course, you can plan as much as you want, and then everything is going to go wrong anyway, which is a lot like producing, by the way. <laughs> like, I actually, there's a lot of overlap between producing for theater and being a parent, which is something that feels very normal to me, which is great. But I do think that a lot of this, like the hours are not conducive really to this sort of last minute and sort of like, let's figure out as we go along is also not conducive to parents. Mm. Yeah. And how about you, Rachel? What would you say, how would you describe what it's like to be a mom in the performing arts? Broadly speaking, knowing that that can vary from city to city and person to person. Yeah. I think the terms that come to my mind are invisible labor, contingency plan, creative problem solver. And I think what Roberta's saying just about the unknown is so important because you have to be able to say yes to opportunity that comes up with a 24 hour notice, maybe. And then once you do take the opportunity, you're expected to prioritize that opportunity over everything. 
And those expectations, we're now asking questions on healthy is that for everyone. But yeah, those are the situations that are most common. Yeah, that's tough, especially from the child care perspective. I want to pass it back to Tom, but just one quick follow up for both of you, which is, you know, what have been your solutions to the child care conundrum when there is so much unpredictability? In my view, I have tried to get help from family a lot. Like, you know, I, I sort of understand when the high stress times are going to be. As I mentioned, you know, right before we start performances of a show, uh, it's when things can happen. And so I try to figure out my family doesn't live in this country. I'm originally from Brazil, so they live there. But I try to see if my mother or my aunt, who's my daughter's godmother, can be here to help out with that which has been great. And also, honestly, a lot of my friends, like a lot of my friends in the performing arts don't have kids yet. And it's wonderful to see them with my child because they love my child because it's part of our little theater family. And so depending on them as well, to be able to step up when possible. And then sometimes just having to say no and it being okay or saying like, I have to call in or something like that, which in my position, I'm able to do, but not everybody can do that. You know, like an actor is not able to call in, you know, but I, as a producer, that is something that is possible for me. Yeah, for me, I think this transparency that Roberta's mentioning is really important. Whenever I get a show, I have to reach out to family to see who can travel. We have in-laws who are flexible scheduled, and my mother's a real estate agent, so she uses some of her flexible schedules to come up and stay with us because it's cheaper to, you know, buy a flight for someone to come up than have a babysitter. And I also, there's an organization called Broadway Babysitters in New York City, and they are composed primarily of artists who are used to, you know, if you have to have someone watch your kid for 10 hours out of 12, which is what we call our long tech days, 10 out of 12s. They have like a stage manager or an actor who knows what that schedule is like. It's not going to be weirded out by you saying, could you come to my house for 12 hours? Or can we find people who can split up the time? And then I also, any sort of online database like Urban Sitter that I've used to, you know, if I get jettisoned out into a job or a conference in Portland, I can look up babysitters who are around the same location. And those sort of memberships have become really useful, but they're expensive. They're a resource hit for sure. First, I want to say that you know, law is known to be, although thanks to people like Lori, it is now changing, but it's known to be inhospitable to working parents. But I got to tell you, I don't know if that's a win, but you guys think of God as beat. I think the, the performing arts is making it look like we got a cakewalk in terms of parenting responsibilities. That is, those unpredictable schedules are just really tough. So kudos to you guys for being kind of on the vanguard for changing a lot of this. And I want to point out, too, the importance of a trend. It will continue nationwide, but for paid leave. You mentioned, you know, New York's got a paid leave law, and that played a, a role here. And D.C. has just passed our own paid leave law that will cover parents in addition to other folks who need leave and how crucially important that is because, you know, we have nationally, we have the FMLA, which applies to to some people, but it doesn't require paid leave. And there just aren't that many people who can afford to go without a paycheck for that long. So just a couple of observations. Well, let me, and I think we've already covered some of this ground, but to the extent that you have anything else you want to add in this area, and I'll start with you, Rachel, what uh, workplace supports did you find particularly helpful as you became a working parent? I think the story of my agent is 
pretty exemplary in terms of just what's free is celebrating that individual and just saying yes to everything that they are. So much of this, you know, you can have maternity leave policies and still have a hostile work culture. And in many ways, that ends up being what breaks the individual, we found in our testimony. So the support is people saying yes to the fact that there are needs outside of the industry. That I was just talking to someone today where um, they asked if they could fly home on their day off because their child was sick. And they, they said, oh, yes, absolutely. But you'd be surprised that there have been responses contradictory to that, that people have talked about. So I think just showing that you prioritize the health of that individual and that individual's um, dependence is such a huge alleviation to the conversation. And then also the other thing that I now recommend everywhere I go is for any institution that start initiates the conversation by saying, by the way, these are our resources is letting me know that this is an organization that is not going to be hostile to me when I ask for something more specific. So just off the top of my head, it's prioritizing life outside of the industry and starting the conversation by initiating with what resources are available. I think those are great points. And, you know, that's a common thread that we have heard, you know, which makes sense that policies are, of course, very important, but you've got to have people that implement those and to have you know, someone in a leadership role or in a support role who actually genuinely believes in those policies and uh, believes in helping working parents makes a tremendous amount of difference. So, yeah. Well, I also just want to say that that's in working with Roberta specifically on this project. When I saw how she wanted to go public, I knew that that was going to be one of the game changers because she's someone in, and I'll, Roberta can say more, but I just want to say that that's what we're talking about is someone in this position saying, I want to be an example to the rest of the field is what makes the difference. Yeah. Roberta, you want to pick up there? Yeah, absolutely. I do think that that makes all the difference. Like I am in a leadership role in my organization and I also am known in our field for doing a lot of advocating for equity in the field. So for me, this is just an extension of that. So I think you lead by example, Right. And so for me, what I really value is the flexibility that I'm able to have. But what something that Rachel and I talk about all the time is that a lot of these things that we say, these supports that we want to put in place that we talk about are actually not just good for parents. They're good for everybody. Right. A lot of our industries, this is definitely true in theater, and I'm sure this is true in the law as well. There is that idea of like, you know, you need to bleed for your art. The, you have to work as hard as possible and not sleep. And so it's actually a thing of our field, especially. And so a lot of what we're talking about is how we can take care of ourselves. Like, what do you need as an individual? So, for example, I model that one of the values here at the Playwrights Realm is flexibility. So when my staff member, you know, came to me the other day and said, listen, I need to go because my cat has been limping. I need to take my cat to the vet. Just do it. Of course. You know what I mean? Like, that's something that is important to you. I want to like, you don't even need to ask me. I want to support that. How can I help you make that happen? So I think that a lot of these things, a lot of these ways of thinking that we're talking about can actually be good for anybody, regardless if they're parents or not. And this is one of our big goals for this project that Rachel and I are working on, is really to show how this could actually make our industry better. I think that's a fantastic point. And we've seen, you know, some progressive employers, you know, 
implement what you're talking about. Just a you know paid flexible leave that's open to anyone, regardless of parental status. Because of course, you know, parents have an acute uh, and real need for time off. But you know, as as you point out, Roberta, there you know people need time off for for all kinds of reasons and. It is, you know, rising tide lifts all boats for everyone to be rested and really present at work. And rather than setting up this dichotomy, you know, which sometimes we hear, well, okay, wow, isn't it great that, you know, these parents get this time off as if we're at home eating bonbons. But nevertheless, isn't it great, you know, they get this time off, but, you know, but what about me, the person with, without a child? So I think that's a very important point. Well, while, Mary, let me continue with you. Were there any workplace changes that, you know, as a working parent that you thought you would need that turned out not to be as important that you as you originally thought? I actually thought that it would be important to me to have the flexibility to be able to bring my daughter in if I needed to, to a rehearsal or even to the office. And the office was totally open to that. But actually, you know, as you mentioned before, every parent is different. And so for me, I actually ended up finding out that when I was in the office or when I was in rehearsal, it was easier to me to focus to get the work done if my daughter wasn't there, generally speaking, you know, other than special occasions. Some parents don't feel like that. Some parents feel that it's great to have their kids there and they can do it all. But that was an interesting one for me because I was like, oh, it'll be great to see my daughter in the middle of the day. But I actually found out I'd rather just focus on work. And then when I'm home, I'm home with her. So what I've changed dramatically in my way of working is that before, you know, I would go home, I would still check my email, do some work. And now when I'm home with her, I'm really home with her focusing on that. But then when I'm here in the office or at the theater at rehearsal, I'm really focusing on that too. Yeah, excellent insight. Rachel, how about you? Anything you thought would be important as a as something you would need that you didn't? That's an interesting question. I think that I've been surprised when I actually decided to bring my kids in, how, because I was the opposite. I started off really isolating it, thinking, yeah, this is going to ruin people's perspective of me. I know I can work around my kids, but I don't think other people can see me in another way. And whether, you know, our community has been a part of, I know that our community has been part of changing that, but I have learned for myself that I can give other people more credit. That if I find the right people to engage with in the right leadership, like Roberta, being able to bring my children into the space, other people are still capable to see me as a professional. And it just proves to me how possible it is to be able to identify a working parent as fully professional and fully parent all at the same time. (laughs) And that's okay to ask people to do and actually insist on. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make. But let me stick with you for a minute, Rachel. So looking forward, what supports did you not have or do you not have as a working parent that you think would be important for people coming up behind you to have? Yes, let me just, I'm going to be referencing our project and we haven't said the name of it yet, but the project that Roberta created for the Playwrights Realm is called the Radical Parent Inclusion Project, the RPI project. And what we just did actually is provided childcare at auditions. And this goes for so many freelancers having to take meetings or take interviews or go to auditions. My auditions personally cost around $100 every audition that I take just on babysitting and renting a space and finding food for my kids. And that's for a job I don't have yet. So in order to move forward, we have to make finding more accessible 
because that is a big reason why people don't get the jobs is not because they're not capable or because they don't want to work, but they simply cannot afford to be seen. And when we cut off access at such an early source point, then what we're doing is we are directly contributing to gender parity. Let's not even talk about the gender wage gap because the majority of caregivers, because of the you know, social structures are women or identify as women. So, and more men want to be caregivers, but then if they become primary caregivers, where does it leave their art if they don't have audition childcare provided or interview childcare provided? You know, talk about designers having to present their work, take meetings. So just this idea of, I would love to see more structural institutional support for just access to be seen. And then once the job happens, I would love to see our industry specifically start to value the health and the contribution that I think will exponentially spike in a productive way that happens when we plan and prepare ahead of time for what our expectations are for people. Not telling people what the schedule is 12 hours before, but releasing a rehearsal or production schedule a week before, which we're also doing with the RPI project. It's simple things like that won't necessarily cost money, but will just take a change of thinking that I actually think are going to improve the art that we make because people will be able to be more productive in the space and bring more. Oh, that's a great point. Just the amount, the expense that it requires just to even be considered for the job. And I think that probably would have good lessons for other industries because it occurs to me that's true. Maybe not, probably not as the same amount of challenges you guys have because the notices are so short. But if you have to go to a job interview or a job fair or a networking, you know, if you're in an industry that's not theater, it's the same thing, right? You got to arrange the childcare, you got to find something to do with your children, and there's no guarantee you're going to get that job. So I think it's not something I'd really thought of. And I think that's an excellent place to, because you can't get the job if you can't show up for the interview. Right. (laughs) Right. All right. Same question for you, Roberta. Roberta. In my view, I think that one of the things that would be great would be instead of the parents having to go to the theater or and say like, oh, this is what I need. The theater already starting and acknowledging that and saying like, you know, we know some of you are parents or some of you are caretakers. How can we help? And not to say that we're going to be able to help every single time, but sometimes there are changes that are so simple for us to make and it just maybe didn't occur to us, you know, like Rachel and I are discussing right now, this current show we are working on. There's one of the days that we have scheduled to have rehearsal right now, which is a holiday. And so it does mean that schools are not are out. And so for the parents that have school age kids, like they're either going to have to find childcare, have family members come watch them. And so Rachel and I were like, well, maybe we just change rehearsal and we put it the day off a different day and that becomes a day off. And then the parents can stay with their kids, you know, and it was just something that like maybe wouldn't have occurred to us. So I would say that especially as a leader of an organization, I'm committing to ask instead of waiting for the parents to reach out to me. Excellent insight. Okay, Lori, I will pass it back over to you. Yeah, great. And I just, I love how thoughtful and sort of on the leadership edge you are being of questioning sort of the way things are done, right? Just because rehearsal has always been scheduled on this particular holiday doesn't mean that it has to be that way. And Rachel, I really particularly can relate to what you were saying about sort of things that are last minute that could be planned out. And, you know, definitely in the legal world, there are more fire drills than need to happen and wreaks havoc on parent lives. And I suspect, you know, across a lot of industries, there is more advanced planning that can be done that would make some of these 
logistical issues a lot easier. So thank you for raising those points. My next question for both of you, and we'll start with you, Rachel, is stepping outside of the specific supports that might be in place for parents. What would you say are some of the global changes that are happening in your industry that are affecting working parents, if any? Yeah, no, there are so many. Like Roberta was saying, she has been an advocate for a very long time in our field in terms of inclusion. And what we're noticing as we work with parents and talking about their needs is that the conversation automatically expands to caregivers in general. Like what happens when you have a parent who gets sick or when you have a child who's going to be a dependent for their entire lives if you have a child with special needs. And then we start to talk about, oh, these things that are inhibiting, we hear it echoed over here, a very forward thinking and part of the mainstream just recently conversation in performing arts of a work-life balance and wellness. Because like Roberta said, there's this idea of like bleed for your art, but there's also kind of this idea of the disposable artist where you work until you burn out. And once you burn out, you're replaceable. And it's just this, if we care about longevity, if we care about career sustainability, then we're going to want to care about practice that is sustainable. And that also relates to our institutions because so many of them are finding the need to adjust in primarily technological world, things that are becoming digital. And so now institutions are asking questions, what makes us sustainable? What makes our infrastructure sustainable? What makes our the way that we communicate with our audience and with the way we want to expand our audience sustainable? The fact that the digital world is making it a more... Um, international access to a single location? How do we expand the, the global reach to our theater in Montana? And that's important because these are potential um, patrons. These are people who are potentially going to engage with art that says something and is able to respond in an international sense. And so this whole conversation revolves around this idea of asking, how do we need to change in order to be sustainable and more inclusive? And that what we say at PAL is that we care about inclusion through the lens of parenting. It's not just about parents. It's about saying with parents, it's an inescapable reality. It's often much more immediate and more visible because the children are actually there quite literally often in your actual face. And we're saying, what can we learn from this that says this is mid-career when it usually happens. People fall off the grid. Um, institutions don't know how to take care of their retention problems. So if we talk about wellness, work-life balance, by focusing for us on paying attention to the parents, what lessons can we learn that are transferable, that make us sustainable, that make us sustainable not only in individual career trajectories, but in institutional wellness, and that also improve our HR health benefits without having to you know, raise the financial budget projection. It's actually just going to improve the health of the culture and what you expect from people and treating people not only as resources, but as individuals with lives, which improves the resources they can give. So that all of those conversations, I believe, are interconnected with this idea of you have a life outside of our industry. How can our industry support you? And then you are going to support the industry by being able to give back. Mm. I'm inspired that these conversations are happening across many different industries right now. So absolutely. Yeah. So healthy to have this sort of a trend and necessary. Yeah. Okay. Roberta, how about you? What changes, if any, do you see happening in the performing arts that are affecting working parents? 
So, Lori, as you mentioned it, there's so common to say like, oh, this has always been done like this. There's no way to change it. This is how it's always been done. And then somebody comes in and does it differently. And then everybody's like, oh, I guess you can't do it differently. And so I do think that one of the big changes is what Rachel and I are working on. So the playwrights realm, as you mentioned at the top, we focus on early career playwrights. And this fall, we are actually having the world premiere of this incredible play called Mothers. And this play was written by this wonderful playwright. Her name is Anna Munch. And she's Asian American, is a mother of a toddler, and lives in California. And this is Anna's first big production in New York. And of course, she has a son. And this was one of something that she was really worried about, you know, because either she could come here for seven weeks and not see her son for that amount of time, or could she bring him? How would that work? And so I were interested in doing this play. I started thinking about this and I said, would it look like to do a process of producing an off-Broadway play that was completely inclusive to parents? So Rachel has mentioned our Radical Parents Inclusion Project, and this is where this was born. I told Rachel, I said, Rachel, I have this big idea. I don't know how it works, but I think we could do something. So essentially, we're going through the process of producing this play, really centering it around the experience of parent artists. So that means prioritizing the hiring of parent artists, like our playwright, as I said, is a mother. Our director also actually is a father. Our stage manager is a mother. We have a few of our designers. We're just in a casting process. So instead of it being, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, she's a parent, so we might not want it. She won't have time for us and then not consider this person, which happens all the time, although that's illegal. Like that happens a lot in our industry. I've been part of those conversations, you know. We are doing the opposite. We're saying we want them because they are a parent and this is an asset, especially for this project, which is about caregivers. And so we are thinking about this and and we are basically questioning every assumption. So everything that's how usually theater is made, we are thinking about it and we're like, well, does it have to be like this? For example, as I mentioned before, you know, very usual schedule, six day work week. For this play, we are doing a five day work week, six hours a day. So everybody's able to spend the morning with their child, then be at rehearsal, then be home time for dinner and have two days off, Saturday and Sunday. So if your kids are in school, you get to spend those whole days with them as well. Thinking about times when we might provide childcare on site, like tech that we mentioned, which is the time that we're all in the theater trying to pull that play together before the audience comes in. And we're trying to think of every aspect of it because obviously it's not about just the people creating the play, but one of the really hard things to parents is when do parents have time to go to theater? You know, that has been a big change in my life is that I have to now think of every play I want to go see and literally think it's babysitter worthy because, you know, I have to spend an extra hundred dollars to hire babysitter. And then, you know, the play runs longer. I'm texting the babysitter, telling her I'm going to be later. It's like a whole thing. And so one of the things we are providing as part of this as well is we are providing a child care matinee. So we are going to have a matinee that's going to be an afternoon. I think it's going to be around 4 p.m. And parents can bring their children and they'll leave their children with, you know, babysitters. Like we're going to have probably working with Broadway babysitters that Rachel mentioned before. And the kids will be doing activities. The parents watch the play and then they pick up their kids and go home for dinner. And so this idea of really putting parents first through this whole process, I think, is something that is very unique in our industry. 
And Rachel and I aim to share this project and how the challenges, the successes, so it's replicable in other theaters around the country. Like our goal is not just this play. Our goal is really for this to start being an agent of change within our industry. You guys are so cool. That is really amazing. And I love that you are being that change that you want to see and really leading by example here. If you send us the information, if there's a webpage or anything about mothers and more about the play, we're happy to list it in the show notes as well. I suspect some of our listeners will want to go see it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send it to you. But if anybody's interested, it's playwrightsrealm.org. And the show is playing is going to be playing off Broadway in September. So there's plenty of time, but we'll share all the information with you as well. Wonderful. Yeah. And kudos. Good luck with that. Back to you, Tom, to wrap us up here. Thanks, Laurie. Uh, yeah, that really impressive. Just all of it. I love just the whole moonshot aspect of it, like not nibbling around the edges. Let's really, you know, do something radical and change workplace involving parenthood. So, you know, kudos to both of you. That really is fantastic. Rachel, let me ask you one of our final questions here, which is what is your number one best piece of advice for navigating life as a working parent, either specific to performing arts or just generally? My number one is find community, whether that's online or, and we have our PAL Facebook page, our PAL website, where we help connect people with local communities or communities where they're going to be working in. And the reason is because you cannot underestimate the value of resource sharing, even just in that emotional support. The isolation is so tempting. But the number one is find community, because when you do that, not only do you have extensive resources in terms of what those people have found in support systems, you know, such as babysitters and theaters who are family friendly, et cetera, but also in finding people who remind you of your internal value and your inherent value and the fact that you're still an artist and you're still worthy of creating, even if you want to take time away. And I think that we need both of those things to work together in an integrated way in order to proceed healthily. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And as human beings or just animals generally, if you look how it is out in the wild, you know, you don't take their babies and hole up, you know, by themselves and try to do it alone. You have others participating and pitching in and it's not a solo event. And I think we have, you know, we have lost some of that natural community that we have and, you know, growing up around extended family because people move. And so I think it is really important to reestablish that. I think it's a great point. Rachel, is there a book in particular that you would recommend to people that you found useful as a working parent? No, I have loved reading excerpts of Lori's book, quite frankly. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just so action-centric in a way that I think a lot of parents need because I have not found a book that's for performing artists specifically, which is why I find Lori's resource so inspiring. That's why I'm... PAL is building not only the institutional handbook of best practices for institutions, but our goal is also to create compatible resources for individual disciplines. So we've already started building um, the individual handbook for actors and stage managers because they share a union and the individual handbook for directors. And we want to do it with designers and we've been conducting interviews, et cetera, so that there's compatible language, not only in what the institutions are learning, but in what the individuals Um, can have in order to continue that conversation. And we want to be the bridge builders in that way. Yeah, that's great. And I will also second the recommendation for Lori's book. It really is a fantastic resource. How about, Rachel, a piece of technology? Is there one thing, a piece of technology in particular that you rely on as a working parent? 
Facebook groups, hundred <laughs> percent. You would be surprised. The gold mine, um, just of finding a closed group, like I said, find community, even if it's digital. That's what I mean is that I'm a part of so many groups on Facebook. And so many times I have found people who start pal chapters there. It was in Facebook groups where people said, hi, we're in Seattle. How can we bring this to Seattle? It was on Facebook where I found someone who was like, I'm active in New Orleans. How can we start one in New Orleans? And that's where some of our newer cities have come from is active individuals who, you know, even were selected by the algorithm to find what we have. So digitally, you know, social media can be a necessary evil, but it can also be a really huge help if you teach it what you need. And so just start clicking on those parent Facebook groups, especially if it's for a specific discipline, and you'll start to be surprised at what you discover. Absolutely. Thank you, Rachel. Roberta, same question to you. What is your number one best piece of advice for navigating life as a working parent? I think that it's important to know your priorities and know your values. So sometimes it's so easy to get caught up and, you know, I have to send one more email. I have to finish a spreadsheet. I have to send out this contract and then think of what else you're missing from that, you know, and like, is it really going to make that much of a difference if you wait until the next morning to do that? And this could be to take time with your kids or it could be to take time by yourself. It could be to wash your hair, you know, something as a parent that sometimes that is a big, like that you don't often get to do. And so I think that that's important to know what your values are and know your priorities and then follow through with them. And then same question. Is there a book that you have found particularly helpful in your role as a working parent and a piece of technology that you find particularly useful? Yeah. So in terms of the book, I actually, it's a newer book, but I've really, really enjoyed Crib Sheet by Emily Oster, which is about, you know, she has another book on pregnancy as well. But what I think is interesting is that, you know, being a parent, I feel like everybody has an opinion about how I should raise my daughter and, and why this is better. And what I think is interesting about this book, Crib Sheet, is that she really uses data to say like, no, there's actually proven data that this makes a difference. And there's actually not any studies that this makes a difference at all. And so I think that that's kind of interesting, because especially as a first time parent, I have no idea. I'm guessing at a lot of things. And so it's kind of nice to be able to frame that into something specific. And in terms of the technology, I think for me, especially with family living abroad, is really, you know, video chats, like, FaceTime or WhatsApp chat, because that's how most of the times that we talk to my family and how my daughter sees my family that actually lives all over the world now. And so I think that that's really important. And it's great to see that, you know, she's chatting with grandma for three months on the phone. And then when she sees grandma, she immediately recognizes her. And it's very, it's something that I'm really lucky that we have right now. And it makes it, as you pointed out before, you know, we're such a global society, but it makes us feel a little bit closer. Great. Thanks for very time. All right, Lori, I will turn it finally over back to you. Great. Thank you so much for this truly inspiring conversation, both of you. I'm also glad, Roberta, that you mentioned Emily Oster. She recently published an article in The Atlantic about ending secret parenting and really being public in our workplaces about the fact that we are parents and leading the way as working parents and being able to talk about it in a productive way. And so I'm really inspired by the way that you both are leading in this space and love being compatriots with people who are blowing up the way that things are traditionally done. So thank you for that. Everyone, please stay tuned for our next conversation, which will be with some amazing 
dads in the performing arts as well. And then after the dads in the performing arts, we'll be talking to some parents in the tech industry. So we invite you back for more very soon. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Parents at Work podcast. Are you interested in learning more about our show, our hosts, or today's guest? Do you have a comment or question you'd like to share with the Parents at Work community? Then contact us at www.spigglelaw.com slash podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.